Hi, welcome back to Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast, where we will be diving into each book in the series, three parts each, and seeking to answer the question, is Persebeth the greatest story ever told? Today, we'll be talking about the second arbitrarily decided third of The Lightning Thief, joined by our first very special guest. So let's do it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okie dokie. Hey, I'm Erica. Carter's here with me again. Like we said, (laughs) we'd be here. But guess what? We have somebody else here to keep our conversation from being boring (laughs) and circular. They finally budgeted out for this thing and they got a lot of money and hired a true expert as well. Yeah, Julie is an expert studying uh, Grecian mythology and women's studies. I'm kidding. She's not doing that. (laughs) Like half, maybe. I think she studies comp lit. That was all we offered. We offered first names and majors. Um, yeah, we'll call it comparative Percy Jackson studies. There we go. Brilliant. We love that. Thank you for being here, Julia. Not that we didn't force you to do this, <laughs> but you know the drill. You've been reading the books since you were a kid, and you've been rereading um, to prepare for this very moment. So I, I don't want to ask you what your demigod parent is, because it's low-key a basic question, and we didn't even do that for ourselves last time. And also because I feel like it's definitely Athena. But do you have an answer to that that you feel like you would really want to share? Otherwise, we'll just skip it. I won't give you an answer so much as I'll give you an anecdote. It's also a bit of my background with the Percy Jackson series, which was really exciting for me to read as that precocious sort of child who had that big yellow book of Greek myths that yes, humanity yes, this is Del Ayers, right? whose parents gave them that exact <laughs> book. Exactly. Like every, Old. not that I grew up at all in this place, but it feels like every child of intellectual liberal parents on like the Upper West Side of New York <laughs> grew up with that book. So, so I read that and I was really into Greek myths. I would say I got to my height of it the year before Percy Jackson came out. And I think it did the good work of also giving a lighter hearted relation to this thing that I was perhaps getting dangerously into. But after I read the first book, um, sorry, the story is getting longer than I intended, but, uh, <laughs> you know, the, time. the Getty Museum in, in Southern California, there's two, there's the modern art one and there's the one with the ancient Greek yeah. shit. And I was so far in at that point that I made my dad go with me, drive us from San Diego to the Getty Museum, which is not all that close. I think it's a couple hours away, if I remember correctly. I was, I was maybe nine at this point. And we did the whole Getty Museum and we went to the gift shop. And I also there bought a owl necklace, like a <laughs> owl pendant on a necklace that I wore straight for the next year as a token and a signal to all the world that indeed I was a child of Athena. So, yeah. That's cute. That's cute. So basically, I freaking knew it. Yeah, not a not a lot of plot twists there. We also have mentioned that we all we all identify with Annabeth anyway, regardless. So correct. Happy to have you here on, on our team. Yeah. And then, Julia, I have one more question to ask you. Um, when you were a child, how did you pronounce the name of the centaur mentor <laughs> to the campers? Chiron. What? Chiron. No. Come on. Yeah, Chiron. that's just... Is that... Whatever. Wow. Is, child why, of why reaction? I guess some of us were raised, were, just came up culture. Some of us just started out <laughs> with knowledge, I guess. All right. <laughs> It's fine. Yeah, it wasn't the quirky answer I was hoping for, but that's I'm not fine. Um, upset. It tracks with your previous antidote. <laughs> we're all we're all adults. Okay. We all know how to pronounce it now, you know, and that's really what matters. Yes. Honestly, I wasn't confident in the answer though. If you asked me to bet on it, I, I I would not have. Yes. Well, it's Chiron, and that's what we're going with because Julia's perfect. Yes. <laughs> so we're just gonna dive in now because frankly, we have a lot to talk about. We're going chapters nine through sixteen. 
as I said, we arbitrarily decided the second third of this book was. I think it's a pretty smart. I think it's I think it makes sense. That takes us up to basically right before they go to hell. <gasps> Spoiler. Powerful stuff. Yes. We're going all the way across the U.S. and we're doing it on the ground. And so... This book is efficient and the stakes are high. Efficient and the stakes are high. The stakes are, are super high. Couldn't have said it better. Let's do it. Let's do it. So Percy gets claimed. Huge moment. And then we have this like fun chunk of downtime where he's sad and lonely and he's hanging out at camp and he doesn't have like friends and all he's doing is sword fighting with Luke because everyone else is kind of scared of him and he's sleeping alone in his cabin and he says lights out to himself and he's all sad and lonely and there's like a little there's like a little section of time and then bam quest time quest time Percy gets called in and Chiron more or less gives him the rundown of like what's been happening, these dreams he's been having, the situation on Olympus, which basically to sum up, right, is that like past winter solstice, Zeus had his master bolt stolen. This is like his most important weapon. It's like, you know, like the, the one from the iconic image. He has like lots of lightning bolts, but this is his most important one. It's gone. And he blames Poseidon. Not only does he blame Poseidon, Percy, now that Poseidon has recently claimed him, is sort of implicated in all of this. We're led to believe that Zeus sort of suspects Percy and that it's like a little too convenient, right? That Poseidon has this demigod child who could have perpetuated the theft in a way that Poseidon himself could not have because of, you know, the divine laws and all of that. Yeah, there's this rule. There's this weird rule that one god cannot steal another god's symbol of power is like one of the stupid ancient divine rules. But we have this fun, fun legal loophole about one's children. Yes. The children are, like, off in the loopholes, right? Like, there are, like, these other rules, too, about how, like, gods can't directly challenge people unless they are challenged by, right? Like, there are are all these, like, sort of convenient things that all get basically violated by half-bloods who are in danger um, from all directions all the time. And this rule is interesting because we're about to get a prophecy, and there's something iffy about this rule and this prophecy, but I'll talk about that in a second. So... Uh, Chiron is like, hey, Percy, you're going to have to go on a quest. Percy's like, what the hell are you talking about? And Chiron's like, go talk to this scary thing in the attic. And if you come back alive, we'll chat next steps. And so Percy goes into the attic of the big house and the oracle is a mummy, which is, you know, when you're first reading it, you're like, oh, it's just like a creepy image. She's just creepy and, and old. And obviously it comes back later and is very important. But she's like this hippie mummy. And Percy is freaked out. And we got this cool image of, like, him walking through the attic and there's all this memorabilia from old, like, hero quests and stuff like that from, like, the 60s and, like, throughout American history, which is really cool. Love that imagery at Disney Plus series. (laughs) Please, with the details. Percy's like, tell me about my destiny. And the oracle spits green smoke out of her mouth. And all of the Gabe and his poker-playing buddies basically deliver this prophecy, which is... You shall go west and face the god who has turned. You shall find what was stolen and see it safely returned. You shall be betrayed by one who calls you friend, and you shall fail to save what matters most in the end. Gasp. Bum bum Fail. Bum. Dun, 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 dun. I always thought it was interesting that Smelly Gabe and his drinking gambling buddies embody the voice of the oracle for Percy. There's a lot of layers there. The oracle, it's weird at this point. Particularly because, like, you know, like, if you read your Dallaires like a like a good kid, <laughs> like, you might come into this thinking, like, you know, like, the Oracle of Delphi is supposed to be, like, a, like, young maiden, right, who's sworn to Apollo. Yeah. And that's who we expect yeah. to be delivering this. But instead, it's, like, a dead person, maybe? I don't know. We can't see inside the mummy. And it's a 60s mummy that you would find on some side of the road. Yeah, because I always find 60s mummies on the side of the road, <laughs> Julia. You know, his modern versions of things are, are quite funny sometimes. Yes, it's, the, it's what we love about the books. And it's also interesting because there is that layer of, like, Percy is freaked out by the Oracle and what gets embodied for him in his vision is, like, somebody that he's scared of, which is Gabe. So we get the prophecy and Percy comes back down from the big house, blah, blah, blah. Chiron is like, what did she say? And Percy's like, mm, I'm going to do the thing. But does it mention the scary latter half of the prophecy? Yeah. But obviously Chiron knows that he's withholding information. And he, he, he kind of knows everything, again, mysteriously in his own <laughs> immortal way. So the question then is who's going to go with him on the quest? Because he's accepting the quest now. And that's like one of the, what's one of the rules? Threes. Uh, you always, you always got to have a buddy. Always got to have two buddies. Trio! <laughs> so Grover immediately volunteers 
because he has this ulterior motive to find the god Pan. And he's also like Percy's best friend. And he's like, Percy, I'm going to go with you and we're going to hang out. And also I'm going to like low-key search for Pan on the way. And he's also kind of Percy's only friend. He's also like guilty, I feel like we get from this, given that he's like failed on like two kind of high profile occasions to save Percy and then the time before to save Talia, another powerful person. This is, this is his redemption, both, like, emotionally, but also, like, from an administrative perspective, he needs this. Yeah, he's going to get fired if he if he messes up on this one again. Um, and then there's, like, okay, who's going to be the third person? Yeah. I wonder. The, the person who's been, who's been planning. She's got a plan, right? She's had a plan. She's been wanting to go on a quest for so long. She's been waiting for the one to take her. Should I? Okay. I'll do I'll give a little reading of this moment because it's important in the arc of Percy and Annabeth, which is why we're all here in the first place. So this is page 147 for those of you reading along at home. That's right, Chiron said. Two companions may accompany you. Grover is one, the other has already volunteered if you will accept her help. Gee, I said, feigning surprise. Who else would be stupid enough to volunteer for a quest like this? The air shimmered behind Chiron. Annabeth became visible, stuffing her Yankees cap into her back pocket. I've been waiting a long time for this quest, seaweed brain, she said. Athena is no fan of Poseidon, but if you're going to save the world, I'm the best person to keep you from messing up. If you do say so yourself, I said. I suppose you have a plan, wise girl? Her cheeks colored. Do you want my help or not? The truth was, I did. I needed all the help I could get. A trio, I said. That'll work. That will work. It's canon. It's worked time and again. Yes. This seems like a good time to to talk about... To just uh, lay it out there that this is the trope. This is the iconic trope of fantasy for children. We could talk about the series that shall not be named, right? Where we have, like, a smart female friend helping her stupid male protagonist, you know, like, sort of stumble Mm. through things while we have a second male friend there for comic relief. I will say that Annabeth is ultimately maybe a better role model than that of She Must. Yes. For certain, I think we do definitely see improvements on this, on the trope here, but we're starting off here with sort mm-hmm. of like, this is like vaguely familiar thing that like, I f- I will agree, like we like progress, not completely out of, but like we do like um complicate in interesting ways that are maybe not really complicated in some other series. Even though she's really smart, she's not like a smart ass necessarily. And she can be kind of sassy, especially to the gods, but they're all sassy to the gods. She is like the improvement upon her me me because they don't even like they don't bully her because she's smart the guys are intimidated by her because she's smart but they aren't intimidated to the point where they then disrespect her yeah and she she's quirky like she wants to be an architect she she has like different yeah. character flaws too from hermione as well that i find more interesting like whenever hermione's story is complicated sort of in like a way that i always found very frustrating where she's either like afraid of getting bullied or like it's a uh, man right and that suboptimal like Annabeth really like we we get that Annabeth has like specific career ambitions like you pointed out and she has like specific other uh, other like histories going on like Hermione like we get like maybe two pages in the whole seven books about like her family life whereas like with Annabeth we get like this very full picture of like how much mm-hmm. that factors into her conflict and everything you know I yes we're, we're here for Annabeth we, yeah. we've said it before we yes we ride hard for her yeah Ms. Chase no, we really do we all yes we do and and the other trio I would like to mention just because it's kind of relevant with our cultural consciousness right now <laughs> is the team avatar trio um where of course we also get silly dumb boy protagonist smart Alec female character that actually does all the work and then like comic relief sidekick who is also a little bit useless <laughs> but every once in a while saves the day on accident and I think that it's very I mean like Different mediums, of course, but Annabeth is still very much, I would say, more positive than Katara and just generally Oh, yeah, more just less annoying, <laughs> to be honest. It's another podcast. So basically, we're low-key off. We get riptide. Chiron gives Percy the pen back, and he explains this is, like, the cursed blade. I don't know if he says cursed blade or not. So it has tragic past. Like, bad history. Tragic, tragic past. past. Tragic past. Yeah. I'm not even going to try and say the greek name of the sword but it's badass and it's really cool and we're glad it's back and it's about to become freaking iconic. yeah they're like just sort of a few bits and pieces when they're like first heading out of camp like grover sort of like explains to percy right that like he reeks of gabe and this is sort of our first clue into not just how much sally knows but also like how much she is you know like sacrificed for percy which is important to us as we're starting this quest because we're thinking right like sally's we we're pretty sure that hades has sally right so like this whole time like the subtext to their trip 
to go see if Hades has a Master Bowl, you know, like driving across the entire continent to get to LA is that Percy really like doesn't care about the gods that much. He wants to get his mom back. And this is more like incentive for that, right? This is Grover basically telling him that like, you know, like your mom is married to this terrible person with no redeeming qualities, like just for you. Implicit, you made her uh. life miserable because she made this giant sacrifice to keep you safe, which is, you know, like compounding this wow. level on which Percy is like, this is not fair. Like, there's being too much put on me and too much put on my mom. It should just be the two yeah. of us getting out of here without giving anything to anyone who might have suddenly killed us yesterday. Again, and yet not in a weird way. Like, Percy wants to save his mom, but it doesn't make me uncomfortable. <laughs> and how many other stories are there where the boy's, like, low-key, like, underlying mission is to do something for his mom and it doesn't make me uncomfortable? <laughs> That's just, again, we love Percy. Percy and Sally's relationship. <laughs> Because they have to also, like, travel by land, they're, like, on a, like, a Greyhound bus through New Jersey. Not great. Fury's attack. It, we, we can I already see... I have been on a Greyhound bus through New Jersey, and I can say that... Have we not uh, all been in that person situation? Yeah. You're not moving. You might as well be being attacked by Furies. Like, it's not great. It's slow. The, the, the bus gets derailed also. Like, it fully explodes. We get that people are, like, also now, like, afraid of them. We find out later it's the cops. The cops are chasing yeah. them now. Mm-hmm. A cab. Anyway, we're in the wildernesses of New Jersey now, and we stumble upon the first, like, Skirt on through that. real monster of the quest, sort of, right? Like, they, they go into this, like, gnome emporium because it smells good and they're really hungry because, you know, children who haven't had food. And they meet this quote-unquote <laughs> Middle Eastern woman. Percy describes her that way because Ooh. she's, like, fully covered we assume that... Yeah, they- he brings it up, like, multiple times. Like, the first time that I, I I was rereading this and whatnot, and I saw that, I was like, oh, okay, well, there that is. This is a slightly outdated book. Yes. And then it just comes up again and again and again. <laughs> Percy is perhaps maybe not the most culturally literate, has not had the best anti-colonial education. Um, as we did not. <laughs> as we did not either. We this age. Also, I think it mentions, like, the skin, skin that you tone, can see too. is um, olive you know, yes, olive-toned, yes. which is just interesting and weird because, I mean, if the gods are Greek, do they not all kind of look like this? Which is leading us into the bigger conversation yeah, of, like, like, why are the gods all white? And also, like, when the gods have children, are the children always biracial? Which we're going to have to talk about at a later time. We're, we're going to have some fun conversations about eye color, about, um, mm-hmm. like about lots of things in, the, in, in a future race episode. And we'll probably have to circle back. Like, th- this also, like, for me, like, raises a lot of questions about, like, the line that Percy Jackson seems to try to draw very firmly between, like, monsters and everyone else, right? Where, like, if it's a monster, they will explode in, like, this weird dust. But, like, we, you know, like, that's something that will get complicated more later on. But, like, this is sort of beginning to awaken in us, like, right? Like, maybe, like, a more critical consciousness about, like, what that means and who that term is applied to mm-hmm. um, in these books. But, yes. Right. We, we, we find out very quickly that the person who's there feeding them, lulling them to full sense of security, surrounded by stone sculptors, is Medusa. She made the stone sculptors with her face. And, danger. Yeah. It's, danger. It's dangerous. They, we started to see that their roles develop in this first fight that they have, where basically, like, Annabeth is yelling at Percy, telling him how to defeat her. Percy does defeat her, and Grover's sort of, like, helping, and she's like, got these flying shoes, and he's, like, trying to, like, hit her while, like, not looking at her while, like, flying by on these magical it's tools that he snare. doesn't know how to use. You have to relax. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Ooh. We, we, we also, like, Julia, wanted to get your specific input, though, on a, a more critical, a more gender-critical analysis of the original story, which Annabeth sort of gives us a little taste of, right? Like, after they kill Medusa, right, like, Percy's like, whose fault is this? And Annabeth sort of gives some backstory, and she's like, Annabeth's take, you know, like she's a 12-year-old, probably not, had a lot of critical gender studies, but like her, her her take is basically like Medusa was rude. She disrespected my mother by coming into her temple with Poseidon. They were dating at the time. And so Athena punishes her for that disrespect. And mm. we're also like, there are hints of maybe like Athena was jealous. Maybe unclear. Mm. But obviously Layers. that's a story that we're going to want to unpack a little bit before we move on oh well of course i mean that's a classic like woman attacking other women rather than like the guy that's done wrong right like we're taken to believe if it's my understanding that medusa is not a god she's just kind of some other mythical figure um before she's turned into a monster and mm-hmm. Yeah. They're up at Mount Olympus, which is where Poseidon lives, and Poseidon is going to be with one with the idea, like, hey, 
this temple over here happens to be <laughs> Athena's. I don't know why we can't go to mine, but okay. <laughs> and so, like, it's obviously Poseidon that has gotten them into this situation. And then it's Medusa mm. who is eternally cursed. And And as for Annabeth in all of this, I mean... She's just going along with her mom's story, you know? Like, that's probably defending her mother's, like, the way that she has a connection there and whatnot. We see this from Annabeth kind of a bunch. Especially, like, in this book, we see her sort of working through, like, what exactly her connection is to her mother. And, like, when she is willing to, like, defend her and side with her. And when she's maybe starting to sort of realize Mm -hmm. that, you know, like, her mother's loyalties are not Mm -hmm. her loyalties. Mm-hmm. That's a really exciting mm-hmm. development for us As to see. It, mm-hmm. Book three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, like, this also brings back this, like, weird divine law thing where it might be possible that, like, Athena wasn't allowed to start retaliating against Poseidon directly because of this weird, like, the gods can't interfight thing, even though I guess they clearly can because Poseidon and Zeus are, like, fighting. But, but it's, that's like, more hard like for an that. argument. Right, like, it's much easier, like, in terms of, like, technical difficulty right for athena to challenge mm-hmm. like a mortal or like even a, like right. a demigod we don't really know that much about medusa's status right like rather than challenging right. poseidon who is like a god of presumably like similar levels of power right which i was gonna mention back with the the prophecy thing that like chiron's theory is that hades has the bolt right that like hades stole the bolt mm-hmm. but hades can't steal the bolt so even if Hades has the bolt in the underworld, there's still a demigod who is, like, in the mix here. And I feel like that's something we, you know, skirt over intentionally. Mm. That, like, there's so many other layers, right? We're going to hell and we have to get through all this stuff. And Percy is, like, only thinking about his mom. And meanwhile, we're forgetting the fact that, like, Hades couldn't have taken it. So there's something else that's missing. And there, there are, like, other clues to that, too, right? Like, Annabeth and Grover at this point are starting to notice, like, the Furies are searching for something with them, right? And they both think that that's weird. Like, if Hades has it, mm-hmm. they should be looking for Percy. They shouldn't be looking for an object. Mm-hmm. But we also have no idea what that object could possibly be that they're looking for. Yes. Right. Also, I would I would like to just add the takeaway from this Medusa fight. Like, get Annabeth a better weapon. Yes. Who is sending her off? on a dangerous quest with a bunch of monsters from hell across the entire country. Also, another fun um, book detail. They they only get $100 for this entire thing. They're supposed to make it from New York City to L.A. in the period of X number of days, like a little over a week or whatnot, with $100. $100 is not enough to buy three people in Amtrak from New yeah. York to D.C. Yeah, no, so more money and also get goddamn Annabeth a better weapon. Well, I mean, like, there's sort of a reason right. for that, right? Like, because the knife is there a is. gift from... We mm. don't know. We don't know it yet. Mm. We don't know it anyway. yet. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's a great thing that we're picking up on. There's all these weird things that don't quite add up. And maybe we think at this point they're plot holes. But actually, Rick Riordan is a genius who we stand like the king he is. Yes. The, the last thing we should probably say before we move on from this incident is that, like, Percy sends Medusa's head to the gods. <laughs> we have to yes. stand. We have to sit with that. I think someone's, like, Grover or Annabeth, like, tells him at that moment, like, the gods are going to think you're impertinent. And his reply is, I am impertinent. <laughs> oh, king shit right there. We, we love Ew. that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll push forward a little bit. So they're 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 on their way. They're making their way. They're like basically in the woods at this point. They don't know how the frick they're gonna get out of the woods and get across the country. And they're kind of chatting. And Rucker's just like complaining about like stars and like the forest. Oh yeah, it seems to be another trope of these series. There's there's always some like preteens or teens miserable in the woods camping yeah (laughs) honestly it's this like cute like sleepover trope thing where it's like we're in bed like like it's dark we're not even like looking at each other but we're like looking at the stars we're staring at the campfire we're having this like deep discussion about Mm -hmm. our like Mm -hmm. demons and like career paths you can do it without Um, making eye contact yeah so Grover (laughs) starts talking about more about pan and we start to really develop this subplot of the book that of the series that i really enjoy about the fact that humans have destroyed the earth and the only way to fix it is to reawaken the god Pan who has been like in hiding for hundreds of years, quote unquote. At one point, there was supposedly a story that somebody was shouting off of the shores of an island that, that Pan was dead, Pan is dead. And since then, the earth has gone to shit, but satyrs have always been like, no, Pan is still around and we just have to find him. And if we can find Pan, then we can fix the earth and we can save everyone from mm-hmm. climate change. And I like how the figure of all of this is a satyr because it's an interspecies, transhuman, human-animal blending sort of figure. So all of this critical theory about transhumanism, I'm like, <laughs> it's all here. It really is all here. 
She said critical theory about transhumanism, and that's what we're here for. <laughs> that's what we're here to not I add. I deeply apologize. <laughs> at face value. <laughs> That's why we brought you here, Julia. <laughs> one of the other things that we had sprinkled in this discussion of Pan is that, like, no one survived looking for Pan. Like, when people go out to look for Pan, no one comes back. And that's, mm-hmm. like, getting getting at, like, the level of dedication Grover has to this and also sort of the fact that, like, it's, like, meant to be a feudal quest, right? Like, th- this is not something that people are putting resources into functionally anymore. They're sending, like, weak, expendable people, right, in the form of satyrs mm. who are not viewed very highly by demigods and gods uh, out to do this basically impossible task. For a goal that no one else seems to respect anymore. What an analogy, yeah. fighting climate change. I would like to say that Grover does strike me as a bit of a Bernie bro in these books. <laughs> <laughs> Grover's out there looking for, at this point, he is really like looking for his hero to fix everything with one fell yeah. swoop. We'll complicate that. So we get the poodle and then we're on the train again. We, we got the reward money from the poodle, which is like a fun little thing where we realize that Grover can talk to animals. But we get back on the train, um, on the Amtrak, and we get a little bit now of Annabeth's backstory about her dad, who is a history professor, and she ran away when she was seven, which really little, um, and she just, like, never felt safe in her home, and she also felt like her stepmom didn't want her there. Um, but we also hear a little bit more about her dreams of being an architect. So specific, so delightful. And Percy and Annabeth have this conversation like, okay, our parents fought and and that like was sort of compounded upon by them meeting Medusa, which was like a direct product of Percy and Annabeth's parents like infighting. Well, Percy is like, can't we just like work together like a little bit? And she's like, uh, yeah. I guess there's the chariot. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I guess there's the chariot. So horses from Poseidon, chariot from Athena. And they are, interestingly, still framing, like, all of their potential for friendship and general cooperation through the lens of their... Yeah, I think because, like, also Camp Half-Blood trains them that way. Like, there's a literal caste system, you know, that's, like, it's how you identify and it's how you interact with other people. Lineage is determinism. Because we don't even get to the idea of, like, minor gods and, like, extending Camp Half-Blood to minor gods. It becomes a whole thing. It gets really important later later on. So we got to keep tracking this weird, like, well, my dad said that your mom is a, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then while they're on the Amtrak, Percy is like in his brilliant first person narration. He's like, and then I tried not to drool in my sleep because Annabeth was right next to me. (laughs) He's taking notes. He's learning. He's listening. We love that about him. Improvement. It's so cute. What a what a concept. It's so cute. And like, oh my god, can't you just see that like teen film trope where like the head slowly falls on the shoulder while they're sleeping and it's camera zooms out. It might be sunset. Places. Music starts to play slowly in the background and it's like 15 seconds from like a vampire weekend song. Exactly. Okay, I was gonna say the music (laughs) that needs to go on, like the soundtrack of Percy Jackson needs to be like trash. Pop, alt, rock. I want to hear Fall Out Boy. I want to hear Vampire Weekend. I want to hear Light Panic at the Disco. And maybe that's just because that's the music we were listening to when we were 12. But, like, that is what I want from all of this. None of this, like, orchestration of, like, a fantasy movie, (laughs) which is beautiful, but that's not for this tangent. (laughs) But, yes. And if the rights were available, that's the soundtrack we'd get to be the theme music for this podcast. For this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Alas. Copyright is expensive. Yeah. They're on the Amtrak, and then they get close to uh, the Arch in Minneapolis. Oh, wait. St. Louis? St. Louis. Gateway <laughs> Arch in St. Yeah, Louis. that's embarrassing. Um, this is truly what Percy Jackson teaches us, that, like, America is bountiful, and you can do things between the coasts, because you have to, because Percy can't fly. <laughs> <laughs> We're only here because we have to be here, for the record. We're also here as a fun plot device. Hey, it would be a boring book series if we just did the coasts. What? Would it actually? No, I'm gonna, gonna respect we don't need to think about, about that. Coastal <laughs> elitism is alive and well. So we stop off at the arch because Annabeth is like, hey, now, guys, you know I like architecture. Like, don't let me miss this opportunity. I want to see it, like the structural integrity, blah, blah, blah. And so they stop off at like what becomes one of many very fun landmark battles throughout the country road trip. And Percy like gets separated from the group in the elevator, I believe. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff happens in elevators, let's just say, throughout this series as far as monster fighting goes. And it honestly like makes me scared to go in elevators alone because you'd never know who you're going to get trapped with. Monsters, the cops, who knows? 
Echidna? Echidna. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm pretty sure it's pronounced the same way as the um, monotreme. (laughs) (laughs) So Echidna and the chimera, their like humanistic form is like this woman with her chihuahua, which is a funny little nod towards like a Karen type from Rick Riordan yet again. <laughs> and she's that was the literally monsters is literally a Karen. Karen. He said exactly. she really is because she's not out there fighting him herself. She's out there like talking trash, telling him that his lineage is dumb. <laughs> wow, she like six basically a dog on him, yeah. right? Like Karen. She's like, wow, anyway. they don't make heroes like they used to. And I'm just here for fun and like actually like be I've been sent here. Also, that's the other thing. Yes. We're like we get that Zeus okay this. Question mark? Yeah, it's kind of weird. Percy basically quickly realizes that he is like hopelessly outnumbered by this woman and her scary breathing fire dog. And he's like, I'm I'm a terrible hero. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like he's almost like he gets scraped up. He gets uh, mutilated. His sword falls out of the arch and he's like, well, it's not going to appear back in my pocket anytime soon. And then he basically in this moment of like, I'm going to abandon all of these people. I'm going to like, this is terrible of me. But the only thing I can think to do is jump in the water. And so he like closes his eyes and he jumps off of the arch all the way into the disgusting river below and quickly finds out, A, he can breathe underwater, which we might have known before this point, but he can breathe underwater and he can like see underwater in like an echolocation kind of way. And he meets some magical river spirit thing that looks like his mom? Oop. Oop. What does that mean? Is it appearing to him that way? Or do like river spirits look like Sally? And is that why Poseidon was like into her? I don't know. Those are the questions that run through my head in that moment. But uh, she, does she deliver a message? She says, go to the pier at Santa Monica. Right. She says, go to the pier um, at Santa Monica. Because presumably Poseidon might talk to him. He might give him something like unclear to proceed mm-hmm. at that point. Yes. Yeah, but she can't explain more because the river is too polluted. Yes. Again, with yes. this pollution plot pollution. line, which is very we're important. Back. Yeah, we're, this is almost Hayao Miyazaki level. Just exactly. Humans are a menace. <laughs> the, I, th- I think the other thing that's worth highlighting about this is, like, before he jumps, like, Echidna is, like, taunting him to do it, right? Like, he has, he's, like, been poisoned, and Echidna's like, like, you won't do it. Basically, she's like, you hate your parents, and you should, because you like you you can't trust them. Mm. If you jump out of this thing, you'll die anyway. Mm-hmm. But you'll die betting on your father, and you know that's the last thing you want to do mm. because he was terrible to you. Right. The person does it anyway. To me, like this felt like a turning point in terms of like complicating that relationship between yeah. the two of them, and like Poseidon reaching out through like the naiad to say like, I actually do like care about you. Yeah, I, I I'm gonna do something for you. I'm listening, but I just it's hard. There are these divine rules. Yeah, though the complication between Percy and his dad, I think, is just so interesting as we build up through this book, like building up to the time that he gets to meet him for the first time, because even like throwing me back to the fireside chat that he has with Grover, like Grover is like, I know you didn't just send that head to the gods because you wanted to be a little bitch about it. You sent the head of Medusa to the gods because you wanted your dad to be proud of you. And Percy is like, um, Percy is like, no. Okay, so he he gets out of the river. (laughs) He, like, swims to the shore of the river, basically. The cops are out here now. Like, supposedly everyone is okay, but, like, some of the civilians are injured. um, And that's really stressful because he's realizing that, just like on the bus, like, the mist can only do so much. Like, the monsters are still going to hurt the humans, and they're just going to think that it's something else. He's, like, finding out, supposedly, when uh, when he pulled out his sword on the Greyhound bus earlier to fight the Furies, like, the mist turned it into, like, a baseball bat. And now all of America thinks he's this juvenile delinquent. And not only did he and his mom disappear, but now, like, the cops think that Percy did it. And he's, like, responsible for his mom's disappearance. And Gabe is a narc and is, like, mm-hmm. promoting this terrible news media line. So we've got this whole, like, thing that not only are they being chased by monsters and all of this, but now, like... <laughs> the cops are after them. The police. The literal police. I like how the mist in this way kind of acts like a almost social veil that just brings in all of conditioned impulses and societal beliefs um, when you can't explain something that is actually mythological the response will automatically be there's this kid and it's not that this kid is in trouble it's that he's some juvenile delinquent going and blowing everything up 
Yeah, so the mist just like is is this filter, right? For for what generally those in power will believe, absolutely. Which is also interesting because <laughs> like we like we're gonna keep developing this idea that like the gods are the manifestation of human belief anyway. So like the gods are are their own kind of filter in a way of like how we've come to understand the earth around us, and then like we've gotten so yes. far from that initial belief that now we have this extra filter to make things normal again, and it's just it's very fascinating, yes. and it's going to keep getting like it's not going to we're not just leaving it there; it's going to continue to get developed as we as we go on. <laughs> what comes next? So much to cover. We're back on the train. We're heading out. We're Road tripping. We're going to Denver. What happens? Where, when do they? How do they meet Aries Carter? He, like, rolls up. They're, like, in a diner. Yeah, they're just in a diner. And he, cause. like, shows up on a motorcycle that, um, quote, is decorated with Caucasian human skin. Oh, so, my God. I There's a lot to back there. Holy crap. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> I almost forgot about that. Oh, my we're, God. We're willing to believe that Ares also presents as, like, white, though. I feel like that's implied. So it's, like, wow, this man is a sociopath without a call. Oh, my God. Anyway, <laughs> um... It is amazing to me how hard Rick Riordan goes in on, like, making us hate Ares. Like, he is even more so than, like, I think that Percy even draws this connection between, like, Gabe and Ares. But, like, we first we got Gabe, which is, like, depiction of, like, terrible man from 12-year-old point of view. And then we get Ares, who is, like, absolutely unredeemably terrible and awful. Ares, it's also worth noting, is, like, the second, I believe, god that we meet in person. Mm. And... You know, like, right now we're over to, like, if we thought the Dionysus came off, like, petty, sloppy, like, pow- like as a power abuser, like, Ares is that on, like, such a higher level. He just shows up here with, like, a giant knife to bully some children, to, like, bully the staff at this, like, diner. He's petty. I wrote down in these notes, petty, violent, rude, sloppy <laughs> baby. Bolded, sloppy baby. Like, literally, that's the energy we get. That He's, like, incompetent among all of these things. Like, he's someone who has, like, all this power. He's lost his shield. He's yes. a punk, but he's a useless one. He's a punk, but he's a useless one. He, he like, instead of, like, being competent the first time and not losing this, he's, like, bullying children, three children, into, like, doing labor yeah. for him. Our opinion of the gods so far, it's it's decreasing. It's highly it's, it's negative. with us. yeah. Highly negative. And we, like you said, Carter, I like that what you wrote down in our notes about it's this like mini quest now that we get because it's like high like a setback that Ares is putting them on. Like he comes to visit them at this diner and he is like, hey, kiddos, like it's me. It's the God of War. Are you intimidated yet? And they're all like, what the hell? Like we don't have that much time. And he's like, I need you to go do this thing for me. Um, I was on a hot date with Aphrodite, who I also start to think negatively of because you can't categorize Ares as this terrible and then expect me to like Aphrodite for getting with him. <laughs> but uh, Hephaestus sets this trap for them at their uh, water park that they were on the date with, and uh, he, Ares needs Percy and Annabeth and Grover to go and, like, retrieve his, what is it, shield? Shield. shield thing. Not that he explains the Hephaestus trap part. Yeah, he doesn't explain Ares that, just sorry. says, get it. <laughs> Ares is like, go get me this thing. And they're like, it's a trap. And he's like, yeah, it is, bitches. Like, <laughs> go prove me wrong. And then I'll, like, reward you with maybe, like, money. And he also, like, pays for their dinner, but through intimidation of their waitress. But the trap also leads to one of the first very exciting moments for a young reader, or frankly, any reader that is waiting to see what's going to happen with this tension that's <laughs> obviously brewing between Percy I'm and shaking. I'm like... <laughs> the trap, the trap, everyone, is is that he lost his shield at the Tunnel of Love. Ooh. Ooh. And this is oh like, wow, way for Rick Riordan to like plug in this classic tween trope of like the water park and like getting on this like twosome seated ride. And like, <laughs> obviously we're in a completely different context, but we still like Percy and Annabeth, once we get to the water park, they're like, I guess we'll just like, don't you want to get on this ride with me? And Annabeth is like, ew, uh, fine. And there's this like weird acknowledgement that like they know that there's tension. Aphrodite leaves her scarf there, which Annabeth grabs in an attempt to take love magic away from Percy. Lots to unpack there. We'll see it again. Yes. Yeah, Aphrodite is... is we're going to meet her eventually, and, and she's got she's got her own ulterior motives. They're like They, like, jump into the thing, and then they're getting the sword, the shield, and they're like, oh, this was easy. Bam. Turns out it was a trap, and it wasn't a trap set by Ares. It was a trap set by 
Hephaestus, and that's why Ares couldn't get the thing because he's so dumb that he couldn't figure out the working around the mechanics. Yeah, the literal yeah. like mechanical trap that is being set. They get trapped under like a net, and we find out that they're gonna like this footage of them being trapped, which like would have been Ares and Aphrodite, is going to be broadcast live to Olympus, which is such a fun. It's the kiss cam. Yeah, yeah it's like Olympus has reality television because they're just as trash as the humans are. And heroes are, like, their entertainment. And then they're like, oh, my God, like, how are we going to escape? Like, oh, my God. And then the spiders come in. Oh, no. Because we find out Annabeth's, like, one weakness is spiders. Because of her mom. Because of her mom. Because of her mom. And another fascinating story about Athena that really is one of the few that forces us to complicate our notions of Athena as a pure, intellectual, radical, trailblazing feminist. No, no. <laughs> Tina is very petty, but I will say for Annabeth, the way it's described in the books isn't this time, oh, this person wronged my mother, mm-hmm. so I hate spiders. It's, oh, no, Arachne takes revenge by sp- sending spiders to torment yes. and scare me and all other children of Athena for our entire lives. So, yes, yeah, I, I, I am with Annabeth on yeah. this one. We're, we're like shifting from a view of like... We understand why she does not like spiders. We're seeing less of the kids like trying to like glom onto their parents and more of, of like them and us together, like realizing that their parents are like... Stuff like glomming onto them, like our par- their, their parents are like fighting their fights and like living their drama through the kids who, of course, are like much weaker and can die. But we're starting to see like that that relationship is increasingly like toxic and not something that we love. Mm-hmm. It also like though helps us to like humanize Annabeth a little bit. Yeah. It's nice for her to have um, weaknesses that are like not just uh, cannot men, relate to boy. Like- oh, no. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Percy and Annabeth basically work together with Annabeth's wit and Percy's water powers, and they manage to get themselves out of the situation before they get broadcast live to Olympus. And they escape, and then they have to go and meet Ares and deliver the shield, which they do. And Ares is, like, there waiting for them, and Percy is like, you freaking, like, ooh, I'm... uh, You're bringing out all of my toxic masculinity, and, like, how dare you, like send us on your stupid errand. And Ares is like, yeah, yeah, whatever, kid. I arranged this ride for you. So, like, thanks for your help, but no thanks for your impertinence. Is this where Percy starts to, like, threaten Ares and kind of pop off at him? Yeah, no, he full-on does. He starts to, like, get a little bit, like, I mean, he's really, like, Ares is really bringing it out in him, and he's really getting pissed off, and, like, and Ares is like, you don't want to make an enemy out of me, you little boy. But whatever. He is impertinent. Percy fulfills both the trope of kind of like the bad boy in this way, but also the goofy one. So like it's not too much on either end. And we love that combination. That's exactly The combination is so important. We need to see that his impertinence is tied to a quest for justice. The fact that he has been done wrong by figures in power. Yeah. It's like Percy's a bad boy because he mentions skateboarding a couple times during the books. But also like (laughs) he loves blue candy and his mom. (laughs) 10 out of 10. <laughs> Not in a bad way, though. So we're getting, we're back on the road, moving past the water park and all this stuff out of Denver. Their, like, transportation that Ares arranged for them is this awful, terrible, privatized zoo Animal shipping system. caravan. It's here that we also find out that Percy can talk to horses and, by extension, zebras, which is just, like, a little fun yes, fact. Yes, uh, that's, like, another one of his special powers, which is really cool. Because he's so powerful. I always liked how, in certain ways, Greek mythology, it's not, it's not too predictable, right? It's not that <laughs> Poseidon's creature is some, like, dolphin. It's literally or, not a sea creature. Or yeah. a fish. Like, no, it's, like, full-on something that has absolutely nothing to do with the ocean. Yeah, there's all kinds of twists and turns. And also because, as we find out, like, when the, the older gods kind of, like, retired from consciousness, their duties got passed on to other gods. So there's all kinds of confusing, weird powers. Mm, Helios. Yeah. to Apollo. There's all kinds of weird things that, like, yeah. get transferred, and we get to, like, keep finding out these cool secret powers. And we basically, we get another one of those, like, nighttime pre-bed chats as they're traveling across the country where we continue to find out a little bit about each character. During their chat in the car, we get, we connect some of the dots here. Like, we we know that, like, Annabeth had this, like, weird runaway journey. We know that Grover helped Talia and, like, screwed that up. We know that Annabeth and Luke have a past, right? We know that 
Like, all these people were runaways. This is the point where we finally get that, like, yes, it was all of them together. Like, mm. Annabeth, Luke, Talia, Grover came together as runaways, tried to make it to camp. And that, you know, like, that's Grover's big failure. That's Grover and Annabeth's history. That's Annabeth and Luke's history, right? Like, so all of these, like, connections that we've been seeing and is make sense this the first time that we get the vision of Talia in a dream? Or yes! Is after? This is where we see Talia oh for the first God. time. We, love we literally her. see Talia, and there's the character description of her, and she has this punk haircut, dark hair, stormy green eyes, freckles. Like, she is by far the coolest character in the entire series, and we already have her making impressions in a dream in book Dare one. I say, Iconic. bisexual icon. From day one. <laughs> oh, yes. No, I think no, we that's, get totally that's like men. definitely That's there. dropped. That's oh, no, canon. she does because of the whole, like, okay, yeah, we'll we'll get into that later. You're right. No, you're right. She's a bisexual icon. I was, <laughs> I stand by what I said the first time. And we also get this delightful conversation to advance Percival truly to the next level. Give it to him, <clears> Carter. <throat> okay. We passed another few miles of silence. So if the gods fight, I said, will things line up the way they did with the Trojan War? Will it be Athena versus Poseidon? She put her head against the backpack Ares had given us and closed her eyes. I don't know what my mom will do. I just know I'll fight next to you. Why? Because you're my friend, seaweed brain. Any more stupid questions? I couldn't think of an answer for that. Fortunately, I didn't have to. Annabeth was asleep. It's the titular role. It's the titular role. Uh, Oh my God. It's really one of the most iconic lines in the book. Like one of the moments I come back to all the time. This time when Annabeth says, we are are detaching from our parents. We're detaching from lineages of Western civilization. And I'm saying that I have Mm -hmm. personal loyalties to one unproblematic man who we've seen so far. Wow. Wow. I love love how this romance story is filtered through a development in independence. Yes! And becoming one's own person. It's so strong. We love that. We love... They learn how to defy their parents together. And at the same time, like, it takes a long time for them to really... I mean, their their whole thing is based on their friendship and, like, their partnership, you know? It takes a long time for them to, like... Obviously, they're 12 right now, but for them to become, like, romantically involved because they're growing up and figuring Mm -hmm. themselves out for such a long time. And their mission and their careers Mm -hmm. always come first. Mm -hmm. And even in this moment, Annabeth is like, any more questions? And Percy doesn't have any. And so she goes right to sleep because she knows this conversation is no longer worth her time. (laughs) And good night. And yes, so so that takes us to to Vegas. They get out, they're confident. The, they escape, the animals escape. Grover sets the spell on them. They can run free and the horses are like, oh, shoots, thanks, boss. <laughs> also interesting that like they only get as far as Vegas. Why wouldn't Ares just take them all the way to Los Angeles? Because he's a punk. Yeah, that too. He likes messing with people. <laughs> he's, he's also yeah, he actively like... sabotaging them, as we later find um, out. Yeah, but... <laughs> anyway. In, in Vegas... That part goes really quickly because they just get whisked in Willy Wonka style Mm. into this, like, child trap casino. There's also, like, parallels to Chitty Chitty Bang Mm. Bang here if anyone was forced to watch that horrifying movie. Oh, my God, fantastic movie, though. (laughs) Don't come for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I have always been, like, a huge fan of the Lotus Hotel. Not, like, in a stand the Lotus Hotel way, but in, like, a... It is, like, one of the most powerful (laughs) locations to me in all of the series. Like, it's so creepy. Something about this idea that you can go in somewhere and completely lose track of time. And it's just a heightened version of a real casino. Like, that's how those things work. Yeah, that's the joke that Riordan so aptly... But also, it's like this critique of like mass consumption and unlimited money and hedonism like it's against all he said no hedonism he said no capitalism he said you can just live out your days in bliss but if there are no stakes if there's no stakes like what's gonna happen and like you do have a mission and all this stuff and frankly it's terrifying to lose time because time is the only thing we have at the end of the day and so when they walk out Mm -hmm. of there and they've lost all this time it is like holy crap it sends shivers through my body every time Absolutely. Already, there's such a ridiculously short amount of time to complete this insane quest and cross the entire country, and they've lost five days. Rick Riordan really did that. Oof. Oof. Plot-wise, of course, it needed to happen. We need to have one day (laughs) in Los Angeles, but, like, yes. But Lotus Hotel, like, it's something that we come back to, and it's also something that, like, 
I don't know about you, because, but because I was a Dell Lairs kid, this was like one of the, I think this was the first major thing in the series that like I had zero mm. reference for in terms of comparisons to the classical mythology. Like Odysseus' journey is not super well covered in Dell Lairs. This is more of like a, you know, if you do deep read the Odyssey, which is more of like a. Yeah, you don't do that when you're do, 10. I feel like. Um, not even Julia. Like you would understand this 10. reference. Did you, Julia? Unless she did. No. Julia, did you read the Odyssey? Okay. Um, okay. Okay. I think one of the Not interesting things about the Lotus Hotel is that obviously there's some sort of mythic control and intervention here, but it's never explicitly named. Like, we don't know who is behind this yeah. thing. It's right? like a cult, basically. It's the yes. it's like the, the play on the island of the Lotus Eaters, and it's like, you don't know if it's magic, you don't know if they're like magicians, mm-hmm. or if they're just like this really scary, ancient, like cult thing, then it doesn't get explained. And that's why it still makes me like quiver inside. And I like how Percy figures this all out just by the incident of someone using the word groovy. <laughs> Percy, Percy is nothing if not in with the lingo. <laughs> 30 years from now, demigods will be uh, trapped in the Lotus Hotel and someone will be like, lit. And they'll be like, excuse me? I've been trapped here for 10 days. <laughs> that brings us to the end of this second third of The Lightning Thief. So before we go, Julia, I have a, two very important questions for you. First question is... Do you believe Persebeth is the greatest love story ever told? Oh, interesting. I should have thought about that, given that's the, the premise of, of this podcast. I'm on. Um, oh, God. She's thinking about it. I think within the YA world, it might be. Within, like, the very popular YA series that I read, because what are our other comparisons here? There's The Hunger Games, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. Harry Potter, definitely absolutely not. not. There's... If we even have to we mention just that, that. No, absolutely no, 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 not. Absolutely. Category um, error. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those were the other big reference points for me in terms of series for tweens. So out of all of those, yes, yes, it is. Fantastic. Certainly better than Avatar The Last Airbender. <laughs> oh my god. Also a category error. We don't need to... Do we even bring that up? My second important question for you, Julia, is do you think that it's worth going to all this trouble, not only in this book, but in the next four books, just to save Western civilization that the gods supposedly represent? Mm. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> Based off of what we've seen of the gods at this point, and it's not like Camp Half-Blood is a utopian society. It's absolutely far from that. Snaps. Yeah. Hierarchy. Yeah, at this point, Surely. I'm not convinced. You heard it here first, folks. Probably not. I'm not convinced. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Julia, for joining us. Thank you, Carter. Thank you for all of these things, all of these thematic observations, phrases I probably can't even repeat after hearing you use them. Very well, well, what was it earlier, Julia? You said, like, um, trans, trans human yeah. <laughs> Go read Cyborg Manifesto, everyone. That will be my last step for the night. Coming up next, we've got Hell is Los Angeles, actual hell underneath Los Angeles, and how we're going to wrap everything up and figure out all the twists and turns and finish up this, like, first quest prophecy. Bye. (laughs) Bye, all.